How had it all gone so horribly wrong? What happened? The week had started off with such promise, marching into Jerusalem on a Sunday with the crowds out to see the rabbi, palm fronds waving in the air and cries of Hosanna, save us now. This was going to be the moment. This was when we knew our rabbi was going to be the man we always thought he would be, the one who would liberate us all from this oppression and be our king. And then four days later, there he was, weeping alone in the garden, and the authorities just came and swept him up, one of our own betraying him to them, and now it had all fallen apart. They ran, frightened, back to the room where they had had their final meal with the rabbi, locking the doors and closing up the shutters so that they could not maybe be accidentally seen, be connected to the man who was now in so much trouble. We were just going to sit in that room and wait it all out. Hopefully it would just blow over. And then maybe they could sneak out quietly in the dark of night, return to the villages from which the rabbi had collected them, perhaps even go on with their lives, pretending like the whole episode had never happened. We'd just have to sit and wait it out. The day was growing hotter and hotter, and the shutters and the doors were all closed, and that little upper room was getting stuffier and stuffier, and cabin fever was starting to set in, and the sniping was going back and forth among the disciples, and they just had to figure out how to breathe and wait it out. Just sit still, everyone. This will all blow over. And they did for a time. All except for one, the one who is known as the beloved, the one Jesus loved most, the one by tradition we call John. John could not sit still, could not be quiet. He who was the beloved had to get out and had to see. Maybe it was all going to turn out all right anyway. Maybe he was going to pull off the biggest miracle of all and save himself and show everybody what he was all about. Maybe I have to be there to see that, or maybe I just need to get out of this room and be in his presence one more time. And so over the harsh, whispered objections of his cohort, John leaves the room, leaves the perceived safety of it all, and steps out into the street, the streets which are more dangerous for him now than they would have been the week prior. It is the Passover, and the Romans have tripled the garrison. There are more guards about to put down the very sorts of revolution that they were accusing the rabbi of inciting. 
And so knowing he was in danger, he threw his prayer shawl up over his head, kept his head down, his face hidden, and tried desperately to be invisible in that moment so he could just slip through, just get by, not be seen, be where he needed to be, survive. And so the beloved comes to the hill where they are executing the rabbi, and he cannot look up. It is too terrible a scene to take in with his eyes. Instead, he scans with his head down, looking for the crowd, for one familiar face, one face that might be a source of comfort, of familiarity. And his eyes land upon the women, the rabbi's mother and Mary Magdalene and his aunt, the women who never, ever leave the rabbi's side ever, the women who will be the first to witness the big miracle yet to come, the women who are steadfast. And John runs to be with them. Perhaps he will be a source of comfort to them, or more likely he knows that their presence will be a comfort to him. The afternoon drags on and on, frightening and interminable. And not once does the beloved look up until he thinks he hears a voice, quiet and small and frightened, but still so obviously the rabbi's voice. Is that what he heard? He is not sure until he hears it again and hears the word. Woman. And now they all look up. And now their faces are in the light and they cannot hide because they are being addressed. Woman. Here is your son. The beloved is uncertain what he is hearing in that moment. What are you trying to say? Are you trying to point out that you are her son? Everybody knows that, and now you're pointing her out, but no, it hits him as the eyes lock squarely on his own woman. Here is your son. Do you mean me? And as if to answer, he turns to his mother and says, or turns to John and says, this is your mother. And the two who have known one another for years look at each other as if seeing one another for the very first time in that moment. And all of the fear, all of the dread, all of the uncertainty that had welled up within that week is now overwhelmed by this new request 
this sensation also not so new. It is a small thing being asked, but no less important for its smallness. And given the moment, rather miraculous. Sure, later there would be talk of huge miracles, of empty tombs and ascensions, miraculous appearances. But right now, in this terrible moment, the connection drawn between the beloved and the mother, this simple request. Here is your son. Here is your mother. And the Gospel of John tells us that he took her into his home that very hour for the rest of their days. Now, Jesus didn't have to speak in that moment. There was a lot of awfulness going on at that moment. No one could have blamed him if he had just been quiet there, said nothing, or at the very least spouted words of bitter recrimination against those who were murdering him. And there were some bitter words later on. But in those awful moments, he finds the strength and the wherewithal to look upon those that he loved the most, to look upon those who cannot hide no matter how hard they try, and deliver to them the very same message he had been delivering to crowds for years. It's often said a preacher only really has one good sermon in them, and this was the sermon of Jesus. Love one another as I have loved you, as God has loved you. Such a simple message, and in that moment handed to these two in this terrifying and practical way. Here is your son. Here is your mother. Take care of one another. His final wish for those he loved most. There it is. The last will and testament of Jesus of Nazareth. You belong to her, she belongs to you. Take care of one another. In his final moments on the door of death, God gives us into one another's care. This is our inheritance. This will, it passes on to us too. You belong to them. They belong to you. We belong to one another. Take care of each other. And what have we done with our inheritance?
the world is wearying, exhausting in the evidence of its lack of care. There is always someone being pointed out by whoever happens to be the authority at the time who should be separate, feared, cast out, not beloved. This week alone, I read about armed militias on our own border in New Mexico, down south, rounding up migrants and asylum seekers to help out, holding families at gunpoint. Because this is the message that the powers that be are declaring right now. These are the others. These are the ones to fear. These are the ones who should be cast out. Maybe you side with that message. I don't know. Or perhaps you do not. But still we are victims of the divisions that arise because of that constant barrage of the message of other and fear. And it is so, so easy for each one of us in our weariness to just lean into that sense of division wherever we fall on either side of the line to objectify anyone who doesn't fall within the realm of us, to objectify those we disagree with, those we have determined are the cause of our problems. And we will be conquered by the smallness of our divisions. The harder we lean into them, the more damage we do to the world, flogging all of those who do not meet the definition of us out of our hearts and into the streets in sort of a perpetual Good Friday. Casting out those who somehow we have convinced ourselves are not worthy to be called beloved. world is in need of a great deal of care. And here we are, gathered here on an Easter Sunday, none of us apostles perhaps, but none of us any less beloved. And how often, how often do we respond to the weariness and the division with our own Johnish tendencies? How often do we respond like the beloved disciple to just cover our head and keep it down, hope no one sees our faces just skate through life, not being noticed, not stirring the pot, not making any noise, just getting by to survive? then we gather on this arbitrary day 
the first Sunday after the first full moon after the vernal equinox. That's how we figure out when Easter is. That's why it shifts around the calendar so much, and I can't plan a liturgical year with any kind of reliability. But here we are, celebrating this Easter, a time to be reminded of our inheritance. A time to be reminded of the gift that we have been given by the rabbi. You belong to them. They belong to you. Take care of one another. What do we do with that? We can embrace it or we can treat it with absolute scorn. And here's what I've come to discover over the years. If I scorn this gift I have been given, if I give in to all of my Johnish tendencies to just skate on by, what I find is that when I get to the end of my life, I will probably discover that I really have not lived much at all. That in refusing the charge to care for one another, I have been slowly killing myself, strangling my soul. What do I do with the inheritance? The choice really is no choice. The last will of Jesus of Nazareth, this call for us to be in one another's care, calls upon us to spend it and spend it and spend it like it is money burning a hole in our pocket. Because truly the only gift that grows the more we give it away is our sense of love and care for one another. We Unitarian Universalists, we struggle with Easter quite a bit. If we talk about resurrection, we talk about it in terms of the return of spring, the flowers coming back. Urban legend says that one Unitarian church for Easter titled their service Oopsie-Daisy or Upsie-Daisy. Because <laughs> they just don't want to get into the details of a resurrection. It goes against everything we think about ourselves as people of a reasoned religion. God in human form? A death that means more than any of our deaths, the possibility of resurrection at all, and the promise of eternal life that that gives, that's just not anything we can deal with in a, in a rational religion. And yet, to quote the great Forest Church, for all that we struggle with the notions of life after death, we can know for certain that there is love after death. And that is the heart of the inheritance that we have been given. That is the heart of the gift. That is the call and the challenge of an Easter to live 
our lives in a way that allows us to live on in the love that we have passed on. To live on in the way we have responded to that call for mutual care. To celebrate Easter is to remember that inheritance and choosing to embrace that inheritance. To know that our eternal life hinges on our capacity to live into that mutual care, that for certain is the only resurrection we get. So today, I remind us of our inheritance. You belong to them. They belong to you. We belong to one another. Take care. Love as I have love. So what will we do with our inheritance?